Oh, these these unemotional reactions are just you need you need a little bit of heart. Yeah, <laughs> and that's yeah. when they brought in they so they brought in um, Mario Lopez and Khloe Kardashian for season two. <laughs> Step up. I don't, um, hmm. Yeah, that's something. <laughs> I mean, Mario Lopez will not just stand there if you crumple to the ground in tears. Sure, sure, sure. I'm thinking of Chloe. I think they would both feign a little bit of um, concern for you if you if you collapsed. Hi, I'm Jason Marcos. And I'm Barry Hamaguchi. This week, we're delving into the careers of Jojo and Rachel Crow, two artists who debuted when they were young, but disappeared from the public eye before re-emerging as adults. We asked the question, is it possible to bridge the gap between child star to grown-ass woman? This is Flop Redeemer. All right, good morning, Jason. Good morning, Barry. I see your kava. Yes, yes, we're <laughs> moving on. We're... we're um. What's it called when like a serial killer starts to like do worse and worse things? It's um the tipping point, not acceleration. Oh, I don't know. No, um, ele- not elevation. Escalation. Escalation. I'm escalating. Oh well, <laughs> I've escalated from beer to kava. Well, there you go. I yes. mean, it it does feel festive. Maybe this morning. I think it's also more like morning appropriate than beer. Mm. I mean, it's a Sunday. I feel like Sundays are just fair game, really, for morning drinking. But I was like, oh, well, at least sparkling. It's more brunchy. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I was going to like uh, maybe do a Bloody Mary, but I was like, no, I can't. My problem with Bloody Marys is, is I, I love a Bloody Mary, but I also need coffee in the morning. So my body gets overloaded with acid. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I see. I'll be at brunch or in the before times when we could go to brunch. <laughs> I'd have a coffee in one hand and a Bloody Mary in the other and I'd be like alternating. Yeah. Kind of gross, but like... Heart, I, I, heartburn, yeah. heartburn by like 2 yeah. p.m. Yeah. Okay, so we have some new flop attractions to cover Oh, we have week. so many. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we can just blaze a fiery yeah. hole yeah. through them and just get yeah. through them really quickly. Um, one of our friends did mention a note about the, the Mariah Carey covers quiz that I gave you kind of mm-hmm. on the fly. Mm-hmm. So uh, full disclosure, that was not... That was not researched or rehearsed. I was just quizzing Jason on the fly about all the Mariah covers that he could name. And <laughs> our findings were, Jason. Yeah, so Mariah covers, I mentioned Without You on the Music Box album. It is by Harry Nelson, not Badfinger. And I would like to point out that Wikipedia is wrong. And so... Go I mean, and change I, that shit. Yeah, I don't... I, oh, you know what? They were just making a call for more um, uh, people of color to be editors for Wikipedia. So there you go. It's my opportunity. And I, I I knew it was Harry Nelson because I remember we you know we'd watch those Time Life commercials, um, in TV on like late night at TV on the TV, and mm-hmm. it would s- scroll by all the different CDs oh, yeah. you could get. Gosh, and that, those remember, are lost to the ages. Well, I remember them playing "Without You" by Harry Nelson on there, and I being like, "Whoa, this is not a Mariah Carey song." So, yeah. and then I thought, well, maybe he's part of Badfinger. I've never heard of Badfinger. Who am I to say? So that's the first one. The second one was Open Arms on the Daydream uh, album. I said Open Arms just by Foreigner. I meant to say Journey. I know. You know, sorry. Sorry about that. It's okay. I mean, you got it by me. I mean, clearly I'm not. I'm not. That's not my wheelhouse. Sonically, (laughs) same, similar wheelhouses. Yeah. This one, again, like, you know, this isn't the main topic that we're covering in this podcast. So I don't want to 
try and represent ourselves in that way. And I also don't want to misrepresent the facts about this issue. But when we were talking about Sam Smith, you know, we were admittedly kind of fumbling around the issues of like gender identity, sexuality, and pronouns. And, you know, we really, we really did our best. I just finished editing this episode. So I was kind of listening to it and being like, oh, holy shit, you know, because for the most part, we adhered to the correct pronouns. There were on occasion that we switched Mm. pronouns Mm -hmm. mid-sentence. Sometimes we caught ourselves and changed pronouns. And then sometimes we actually, actually just like breezed straight through like misgendering Sam Smith. Apologies for that. We tried our best. We are still practicing and hopefully with more practice comes better efficacy at executing these things. But I think that when it came to topics of intersectionality between race, gender, sexuality, and gender identity, I think I started this. I think that I had initially kind of filled in the blank with um, Sam Smith identifying as gender nonconforming. And we kind of stuck to that term throughout the episode. Um, when I looked it up, I think that Sam Smith actually identifies as gender non-binary, okay. which is related, but there's a distinction to be made there. And a distinction that I don't know if I'm fully equipped to talk about in great length, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I do know that from what I had read anyway, that there is a distinction to be made there. So okay. also at particular points in the episode, we had referred to Sam Smith as a cisgender white male. And only one of those things is true. <laughs> yeah. So I think, yeah. And I think, I think the point that we were trying to make in those moments was more about white privilege it was it was about white privilege i think it was also about because there had been an interview that he gave where and i should say maybe not cisgender but cis presenting like he talks about his like there was mm. right that like well that there's a person like his he understood to some extent um i mean and there presenting in some in a way period of what we were talking about sam smith did identify as a cisgender white male mm-hmm. So in the in the era that we're talking about, I think when we're talking about the co-opting of a gospel aesthetic, at that particular point in time, Sam Smith does identify as a cisgender white male. When we're moving into the how do you sleep era, at that point, Sam Smith is just white. Yes. And I think the point that, and, I, and I, that totally makes sense. I think the point I was trying to make was that part of the reason that people or the audience were maybe initially skeptical of the the present like the video and like the presentation was because they had not presented that way before. I think it was just mm. it was an it was a new phase for them and um okay. Like that was part of the reason that people had a hard time or not even a hard time just like unsure of like are you sliding in and out of this because mm-hmm. this is popular now? Uh, you know, I think as 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 we talked about in the podcast um, or in the episode, this is who they are now, right? Like, or this yeah. is who they are, and so like that. There's you you can't take anything away from like, from them in that in that sense. Um, there's there's nothing in there, and I don't want to take anything away from like like public skepticism over kind of emerging gender identities that mm-hmm. are are kind of being presented. But to me, I mean, the through line, the through line for a lot of cultural things to me are when things originate from Black communities that are then co-opted by non-Black communities and what that represents systemically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because to me, the, the feeling that I had always had about, yeah, like Sam Smith 
or anyone kind of using gospel music to, you know, bolster their mainstream success or to be referential to ball culture. You know, again, like, I think we talked a lot about, like, the intention behind that and that there was no ill will. But for me, like, cultural appropriation, it doesn't really hinge upon the intent of the person doing it. Sure. I don't think that, like, we excuse Emma Stone for playing a half-Asian woman, even if her intentions were good. Mm -hmm. We don't excuse Scarlett Johansson from accepting a role as, like, a trans man because her intentions were good or because she felt like she is the best actor to represent that, you Mm -hmm. know? I don't think that anyone necessarily goes into cultural appropriation with ill will towards the people that they're appropriating. I think that just the act itself shows a little bit of like willful ignorance. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I I just wanted to clarify that like we were fumbling around with a lot of the intersectional issues of gender and sexuality, I think, when talking Mm -hmm. about Sam Smith. And I think we knew that that was going to happen going into it. So I think that that was really like a test run for us going into the future of being able to talk accurately. Well, and an opportunity to just educate ourselves as we, as we go. I mean, you know, and and to your point, not be willfully ignorant about things that are like, just because like we're fumbling with it. Yeah. Trying to understand it better, you know, trying to understand people better and understanding the experiences of others. I think it's just something that we're just going to constantly be doing. Yeah. Just a few other things that I'm going to try and go through really quickly before we cut to break. But so when we were talking about the movie, The Broken Hearts Club, you had been reeling off a list of actors that appeared in that. And I was like, oh, they're all straight. Wanted to clarify that Billy Porter was included in your list of actors that appeared in The Broken Hearts Club. And Billy Porter is not straight. And we we know this. (laughs) Um, Oh, then another thing that I caught is that I, in the Sam Smith segment, had identified Sam Smith as being, like, old as compared to Ariana Grande and Troy Sivan. But Sam Smith is actually, in terms of time, Sam Smith is actually only about a year older than Ariana Grande. Which is how old? He is 28. God, I hope this is right. I'm just doing this off the top of my head. Sam Smith is, like, 28. Ariana Grande is 27. Mm. Should I Google this right now? I mean, the point is, it's the point you is, know. and I think, and I think you kind of touched upon this later, where you were saying like, actually, they're contemporaries. Yeah, and I think that the main point we were making is that is not that in terms of days, months, years, and seconds, Sam Smith is that much older than them. He just represents that older perspective, those emotions that we as LGBT individuals ourselves kind of begin to identify with older generations. Of LGBT individuals. Yes. Like an like an old school. Like a Yeah. Again, like I think I think we talked a lot about like yeah. what the appeal of the message of a lot of his music is and how that it's it skews a little older, not that he himself is old. He's yeah. an old soul. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. So this is a big, big retraction revisitation in our teaser episode and oh. we revisited this later the brandy and neo versions of a rihanna song we've we've uncovered it and your verdict is jason it is stupid in love not unfaithful and yeah. so stupid in love great song actually great song was also recorded by brandy and neo yeah and so you can find it on uh we put it on our website oh we did okay oh uh, yes oh we will <laughs> yes we will to put it yeah. in the spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I found I found a good version. Okay. Yeah, from like 10 years ago. YouTube from 10 years ago. 
Um, before we cut to break, I want to mention that a lot of these things that we're talking about, clips of the music that we're talking about, we're going to be posting these all to our website, uh, flopredeemer.com. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, things that are going to be the subject matter of future flop retractions, you can email us at flopredeemer at gmail.com and we will... I don't know. I'm really bad at managing email, but someday I'll look at it. I will look at the fact that we got a new email. Yes. I will um, internalize the subject line and, you know, get anxiety over what the content of the email may contain. Barry and I will talk about it and eventually maybe we'll read it. Yes. So you can reach us that way. Um, Let's take a break and we're going to come back with our first segment. And we're back. So today, I'm going to talk about JoJo. And I'm going to talk about JoJo's 2012 song, Demonstrate, which was supposed to be the lead single from her first album. Oh my god, no. Her third (laughs) album. What's wrong with me? I need Kava. Demonstrate was supposed to be the lead single from her third album before being shelved for six years. And so... um, Kind of bringing it back to our preview episode where you and I had like jokingly talked about uh, give two shits about JoJo. Mm-hmm. Uh, for for those of you who do not know, JoJo is a singer, songwriter, and sometime actress from Foxborough, Massachusetts, which is actually the town over from where Adam grew up. Isn't that interesting? Oh, they're neighbors. <laughs> How cute. Wait, she, is, is Adam like the same age as JoJo? Um, no, he's, he's a he's little older. older. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I guess he was talking about how, like, uh, when her first singles came out, like, people were really excited because they recognized, like, the high school, you know, in the in their in her videos and stuff. Mm-hmm. She was discovered in 2003 after competing on America's Most Talented Kid, where she lost to Diana DeGarmo. And Diana DeGarmo would famously go on to come in second to Fantasia Barino in season three of American Idol. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She was discovered on that show by Vincent Herbert. And so I'm like, who is this man? Vincent Herbert was married to Tamar Tamar Braxton. Braxton. Yes. Until last year. Also, he produced and mixed Aaliyah's One in a Million, among other things. I'm a big fan. I I was a big fan of The Real, so I'm very familiar (laughs) with Vince. So you're very familiar. Because I was like, who is this man? Um, He introduces her to Barry Hankerson, the founder of Blackground Records, And he signed JoJo in 2004 at the age of 13. Now, Barry Hankerson, this will become important later, was Aaliyah's uncle Hmm. and created Blackground Records. Hold on one second. (laughs) My cat is playing with these pens. Um, He created Blackground Records to basically provide a platform to release Aaliyah's music because no one would sign her. Okay, So it had been big in the industry at that point. She releases her debut album, JoJo, that same year, 2004, which ends up peaking at number four on the U.S. Billboard 200 on the strength of its two singles, Leave, Get Out, and Baby, It's You. And Leave, I'm, you know, hit the top of the U.S. pop charts. And at 13, JoJo became the youngest solo artist in history to top that chart. She releases her second album in 2006 called The High Road, which spawned her first top five Billboard Hot 100 hit, Too Little Too Late which peaked at number three, and that became her first single to be certified platinum. Mm-hmm. Uh, the album was later certified gold and sold over three million copies. My recollection of that period of time is that somehow she had these massive singles, these singles that you could not escape. But her albums came out, and 
they didn't necessarily perform as well as maybe you thought they would. Yeah. And I think, you know, so that kind of ties into my next thoughts or my, my, my next thought. And that's, you know, she's primarily a pop and R&B artist. And although, you know, her voice is is sort of very R&B Mm-hmm. sounding um but the music skewed more poppy at the beginning of her career she was kind of like this adolescent white girl singing r&b and so pop sort of worked better at the time you know 2004 2006 like i mean that she's was... a 13 year old girl singing yeah. about like broken relationships well and that's the thing like her vocals and lyrics at the time you know the criticism was they exceeded her experience and lacked credibility so to your point about the albums kind of like like these hits were huge. Leave was huge. I, I, you know, I remember, you know, really loving that song. And then I, I'm almost certain that you and I at one point had talked about this when it came out. Um, when she sang "Leave, Get Out," and we found out she was 13. Like the joke was like, "Get out from where?" Like the playground. Yeah. <laughs> like who is she talking? Because we all thought she was much older and yeah. here she is, you know, do you remember the video? The video was like a bunch of preteens yeah. like on the playground, essentially. She's like Rebecca Black age. Yeah. Like Rebecca Black and Friday age. And I mean, but to her credit, separate from her actual physicality and her actual age, she was somehow able to carry off yeah. those songs and the topics of those songs yeah. in a believable way. Her voice is amazing. Yeah. Um, she's got these soulful vocals that at the time were compared to Brandy and Monica. There were hints of Mariah Carey in her runs and her upper register. And also, you know, hints of Mariah Carey in the criticism that, you know, she overdid it with the melisma in general, mm-hmm. right? Which, she, she she had it and she wanted to show it. Yeah. But I mean, like, if you think back at that time, who didn't? Like, this was the yeah. era of, like, Jessica Simpson. And, you know, it, to me, she also oversang. Um a really hilarious criticism or or review that I read at the time was Alex McPherson in The Guardian. He said, while admitting that JoJo is, quote, surprisingly adept at frenzied, sexually possessed hollering, (laughs) he believed that the singer was, quote, however at her best when compulsively dissecting emotional situations straight out of a high school movie via the medium of big, heartfelt choruses. And, like, if there was ever a backhanded compliment that deserved to be framed, I think it's that. But to, like to your point, like the subject matter was, you know, maybe a bit trite and not believable, but her delivery sold it, right? Mm-hmm. And because of this, she came off as more of a pint-sized Mariah Carey or Christina Aguilera than sort of a Britney clone, which mm-hmm. of which there were many at the time, right? So yeah. she kind of her her voice set her apart. So her career is sort of off to a huge start. It's seemingly clear that she's going to be a huge star. Um, her first two albums were certified successes. And in 2008, two years after The High, Gro- the High Road came out, she announced that she was had begun working on her third album. And that's when things started to go wrong. So Joseph Niece interviewed uh, JoJo in Salon this past May around the release of her latest album, which came out, um, it's called Good to Know, that came out this year. And he breaks down why so many people, and I'm willing to bet a lot of our listeners, thought that JoJo had just dropped off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. So starting around 2008, JoJo continued to deliver album after album to her label, but hundreds of recordings were never released. Um, her record label, Blackground, ceased to function and lost its distribution and would not release her from her contract. So 
This move put JoJo's entire career on hold because she'd unknowingly signed away the rights to her voice as a minor. So it wasn't just Mm -hmm. she lost the rights to her music. She lost the right to make money off of any recording of her voice. I'm, I'm condensing a lot here. Yeah. But JoJo didn't just like stop making stuff. She had no avenue to release the material that she was trying to put out for almost 10 years. Yeah. And it's in that period of time that she starts acting a lot more. Yes. Yeah. And stuff just to kind of pay the bills, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I mentioned Barry Hankerson, the founder of Blackground, who signed JoJo in 2004. I started to do this deep dive to be like, why did this all go down? Like, why weren't they releasing music, etc.? Complex did a deep dive in 2016, again, trying to figure out, well, first, they were trying to figure out what happened to Aaliyah's music. Like, why isn't it available online? Mm-hmm. What they discovered was that Barry Hangerson, Aaliyah's uncle, founder of Blackground, never really recovered from Aaliyah's death in 2001. And even though he had signed JoJo, if you think about it, Aaliyah died in 2001. He signed JoJo in 2004. She's also 13. Aaliyah started around 12, 13. And mm-hmm. not that they're exactly the same, but there's a similar sort of ingenue sort of thing going on there. So mm-hmm. even though it seemed like he was going to try and replicate that success, you know, the 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 death of Aaliyah, it took a couple years, but like it it shook him forever. So I'm like, who is Barry Hankerson? I discovered he was at one point married to Gladys Knight. Oh. So I don't know if you remember from the time when Aaliyah died, Gladys was there as like her aunt, like at the funeral and like she was prominent, like at the time, like, Hmm. in her, you know, just talking about her. And I was like, oh, that's so crazy because, you know, you think about all these R&B singers and they're all kind of related, like Dionne Warwick and Whitney Houston. And Mm -hmm. so Barry Hankerson met Gladys Knight just before the whole Midnight Train of Georgia kind of took off. Okay, so like way back in the day, Yeah, way back in the day. He encourages her to leave the pips. So at the time, it was Gladys Knight and the pips. He's mm-hmm. the one who encouraged her to leave the pips and go on her own. Um, mm-hmm. And then he becomes her manager. After several years, they divorce. He moves on and he discovers a Chicago busker who he realizes he thinks, you know, what, this guy's going to I think this is going to be a big success. The The busker's name was Robert Kelly, okay, who is popularly known as R. Kelly. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And goes on to manage him for the next 10 years. And is exec- it sad that I didn't, is it sad that I didn't make that connection? No, I think, said? no, because this is, again, I'm telling you, I went through this deep dive and I will, I will absolutely show you how this all relates to Jojo. But, you know, he manages R. Kelly for 10 years and exec produces his first four albums. He also introduces R. Kelly to a 12 year old Aaliyah. Mm. And we know, we we know, we, I mean. And we know, we know what we know about, about R. Kelly. Yeah. He introduces, you know, him to Aaliyah. He founds Blackground to put out Aaliyah's music and is devastated when she dies in 2001. So there's, you know, the whole run of Aaliyah's success. Another side note, the Chicago Sun-Times reporter who had been um, investigating R. Kelly's reputation at that point in, in the year like 2000 received an anonymous video the infamous P tape. Okay. And in a deposition, this reporter claimed that he believed it may have come from Barry Hankerson, huh. who he said was tired of seeing young girls get hurt. And he also, having known Barry Hankerson over the years, he suspected that Hankerson always felt that he did wrong by Aaliyah by introducing her to. He never got over that. 
like the rumors that R. Kelly and Aaliyah were like secretly married when she was a child. Mm-hmm. Like those started way back then. Like, yeah, in and, the nineties. I'm pretty sure like like they were actually married. Like there's there's like a they lied on the marriage certificate that she was 18, but I believe she was 14. Oh wow. Yeah, and so all of this is happening. This is the man who runs Blackground, right? Yeah. For a brief period after Aaliyah's death, it looked like Blackground might survive, right? Because their mm-hmm. biggest star was Aaliyah. The label still had Timbaland, and he, Hankerson, also managed Tony Braxton. Hmm. You know, this is all crazy to me. And in 2003, he inked her to his label as well. So all si- all signs point towards this being like an up, uh, like on the up and up, up kind and up of place. Like Tony Braxton had already come out with The Heat. Mm-hmm. She was a big star, Spanish guitar, all of that. He convinces her to leave her label, Arista, and go to his label. Big mistake. Huge. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you about it, but like JoJo ends up like trying to sue Blackground to get out of her contract. Oh, yeah. I found out both Timbaland and Tony Braxton also sued him and, and the label for the same things because they had stuff they wanted to release and couldn't. Yeah. You think about 2003 to, to 2007 and like how Tony also wasn't putting anything out. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh... All of these things that we think are just unrelated, like these people are just flailing around, can't put anything together. They all come mm-hmm. back to this man, right? Yeah. And JoJo's JoJo's one of them. She looked like a potential like replacement on the label for Aaliyah. Um, she was ra- aimed at the Radio Disney demographics. It was solidly where you were, Barry. Um, mm-hmm. I remember. My wheelhouse, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That Definitely your wheelhouse. He had, and he also had the unreleased, unmixed vocals of Aaliyah's outtakes. And so more than a potential dozen songs. So all signs pointed to them, you know, potentially being good. But according to his one of his business partners, Barry Hankerson never found the producer that he thought could give Aaliyah's treatment sort of music, like the, the treatment that he deserved. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, Timbaland's right there. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So, but but that's what they're saying. It was grief, which turned to despondency. Despondency mm-hmm. turned to inertia. And then nothing was ever going to be right. Nothing was ever going to be right. And and then they say, like, inexplicably, like, Blackground just stopped releasing music at all. And artists stopped being paid. And as the music business moved from CDs to MP3s and then MP3s to streaming, they didn't participate at all. Blackground didn't participate at all. And that's the source of a lot of these... Like missing tracks. Missing tracks and why you can't find them. And like also why these lawsuits happened because no one was getting paid. Yeah. I never connected that the reason we can't hear Aaliyah today is the same reason JoJo couldn't release music. It's the same reason why Tony Braxton had almost nothing to show in those years. Yeah. It all comes back to this one man, Barry Hankerson. So, you know, bringing this all back to JoJo... You know, because she was unable to profit off of new music, even though she was, to your point, like recording lots of material and constantly recording things, she started to release mixtapes. She was inspired by hip hop artists and she started doing this as a way to sort of try and stay relevant and in touch with her fans. Yeah. And then it was actually really smart because Blackground owned the rights to her voice. So if she recorded something, she couldn't profit off of it. Mm-hmm. However, she could tour. And make money off the tour. So what she did was she started releasing these mixtapes sort of on a regular basis of the music that she was, um, you know, creating, Mm -hmm. making no money off of it. And then she would tour sort of relentlessly at that time. Like she was opening for all kinds of people. Like she would just tour to make money in the meantime. And also to like remind people that like 
you know, I'm still she talks here. About, she talks about like people thought she died and she's like how hurt she was at the time. You know, one of those mixtapes in 2011 was a remix of Drake's Marvin's Room, which was really popular. Mm hmm. It was one of those things because she'd been that Radio Disney star and like, you know, she'd been so young. No one really took her seriously. And then she remixed Marvin's Room and it's it's sort of raw. There's like it's got explicit like lyrics and but it's great. Like it shows she's so talented yeah. and it kind of it just re-energized the buzz around her. And, and so she became really good at sort of bubbling up and trying to do as much as she could for her fans and for people to recognize that she was there. Um and eventually, after years of legal battles, JoJo eventually walked away without a settlement. But she was able to record again. Um, what her lawyers were able to do, what she was able to prove, was that she, because she was 12 when she signed her, con- well, t- 13, when she signed her contract, as a minor, there was a statute of limitations on contracts mm-hmm. that were seven years. Yeah. And so since she had signed it in 2004... She should. She argued that she should have been released to in 2011. So basically, two years earlier. Here's the thing: there was no legal basis. Like, like there wasn't really a legal basis. It was just threats mm. and like constant dragging out the legal process. The thing about Blackground was, you know, there's a there's a label, right? You have your label, and then you have a distribution deal. Yeah. So you record your music with the label, and then you actually have to have a deal to distribute your music. Yeah. It's like how we, with, uh, with Ashanti, we talked about murder Inc as the yes. label and then distribution was done through Def Jam. Yes. So Blackground lost their distribution deal. Mm. So even though she was putting, sending the music, they had no way of distributing it and they essentially stopped trying to, but, but again with Barry Hankerson, he just stopped. Like they would talk about his yeah. legal strategy of just filing lawsuits like countersuing and just dragging it out and that it would get to the, like they would delay, delay, delay until like they reached a point where they would have to do discovery and he would probably end up perjuring himself in a deposition. So just like stalling tactics, stalling tactics for years and basically just trying to drink because who has the money mm-hmm. to continue to fight that. Right. And, I mean, and, does, and also how does Barry Hankerson have that money at this point? We, in time? I don't like, know. They, they, you know, complex talks about like he's a, very mysterious figure. Like, it's amazing that they have this much information about him. But, like, the article that I was quoting, like, it was in 2016. He he was not able to be reached for it. Like, he did not comment. Um, he's kind of just retreated. But, like, JoJo mm-hmm. talks about how, like, you know, she's like, I was 12 when, when I was introduced to these people, right? I was 13 when I signed this. I didn't come from money. My She used to clean houses with her mom. Like, she was like, we didn't know, like all the ins and outs and like the people who were supposed to be looking out for us. She's like, look, I understand they have to make money, but like, I didn't understand what that meant. Like, she's like, I, yeah. cause she says like, you know, like everyone says you have to own your masters, right? That's, that's the thing now, right? You own your masters and you own, she's like, I, I agree with that. But also like I was 12, like yeah. the labels. And she not wasn't gonna, in a position no, to negotiate no. for that. But she also didn't realize the, there was like, there was just, people that she should not have trusted in that process. And that's something that like, you know, she's learned and and it took her a long time to kind of get over that. I mean, there was just depression, there's addiction issues, there's all kinds of things that like in this 10 year period just really exacerbated, you know, her struggle. (laughs) 
In 2008, when JoJo was planning that third album, the lead single was going to be a track called Disaster, which Barry, I think you talked about, like you really liked that song. Love that song. My favorite, my favorite, my favorite JoJo song. Can I tell you why I think that is? And why this tracks for me? (laughs) For you, actually. I mean, it's a pop rock song. Like it's got a pop rock vibe. Um, In 2008. It's the type of song that you would hear superimposed over like, the last week on the hills. Yes. Last week yes. on Laguna Beach. And then they would cut to JoJo disaster. Yeah. Well, so here's the thing. 2008, Kelly Clarkson had released My December in 2007. So sort of that mm-hmm. pop rock, artsy girl vibe, yeah. you know, right? Avril Lavigne's Girlfriend comes out in 2003, which was a huge hit. Or 2008, I should say. Oh, 2008. Terrible 2008. Song. It's not That's- a great song, but it was huge. Right? Yeah, I know. This That's was when Avril Lavigne jumped the shark. This was the genre, though. So, like, yeah. JoJo was very solidly in the moment, right? But after three years of label delays, because this was 2008, and she she tries to tease Disaster as, like, this thing to promote her album, the forthcoming album. Three years go by, and, like, yeah. there's no movement. She announces that she's changing directions after she's written the song Demonstrate um, with Daniel Daly, Anthony Jeffries, and Noah Forty Shabib who also produced the track. Now, Noah Shabib, Noah Shabib is known for his work on Drake's sophomore album, Take Care, hmm. as well as Alicia Keys' Unthinkable, I'm Ready. Okay. It's like a different kind of R&B now, right? We're starting to see that shift where it's like this kind of chill R&B. She says at the time, I'm headed in a new direction, so I wanted to start fresh with everything. And so Demonstrate was scheduled to be released in August of 2012, but the label, again, Blackground, scrapped the release. So she did all this promo. She she teased it. She talked about it. Yeah. I remember this song coming out. Yeah. And I know you don't like I it. I remember this song coming out and being like, this is no disaster. Exactly. And this is why <laughs> I like it. Because I was like, what is this disaster bullshit? I was like, what is this? Okay. Just, I know that we've received a lot of messages that My December is a lot of people's favorite Kelly Clarkson album. Hard disagree from me. But, <laughs> but, but I, your feelings are valid. It's fine. Um, so Demonstrate comes out and, you know, I was like, oh, my God, this, I, I love this song because it's it's this R&B slow jam with this synth saturated beat. You can see the influence of Noah Shabib on the, produ- Shabib on the produ- production. It's sultry and sexy in like a credible way now, which is new for her. Mm hmm. So everyone else was kind of putting out these, like R&B voices were starting to put out these bangers. This is like prime Flo Rida era. She goes the other direction. Yeah. Right? And it received generally good reviews. Many people compared it to Kelly Rowland's Motivation, which had come out the year before. And, And there were even some comparisons to Aaliyah's Are You That Somebody? Like just that sort of grown, that shift. Mm hmm you know, the the critics basically said, and the, and the audience really was just like, this showed maturity that lacked in her first two albums. So there was a lot of excitement, I think, for yeah. for this third album, if it was going to go in this direction. It is, like I said, sexy, sultry. It is my kind of jam. And then it did nothing. Because in 2012, that's when Blackground lost their distribution deal. So at that time, it's just sort of been delaying. For those first four years, they just kind of, it would go and then nothing would happen. Basically yeah. stonewalled. So up to that point, kind of like the distribution was like narrowing and narrowing. Narrowing it, down. It was like the stone door slowly closing <laughs> on Indiana Jones yeah, up to yeah, that point. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's, it's and then it's just shut. Yeah. And she like got her hat 
you know, just <laughs> she pulled it really quick. She grabbed um, it on her way out. So she released a mixtape of new content later that year because she'd been priming people for this and she felt terrible. She's like, I've been priming yeah. people. This is my song. Like, I finally have some good buzz. So she puts out a, a mixtape called Agape um, because she didn't want to keep that, the fans yeah. waiting. And she toured to support it. So again, she found this loophole. She's figuring she's scrappy, man. She's like figuring out how to keep going. And then in 2013, it was reported that that was when the news that she had filed a lawsuit against Blackground for irreparable damages to her professional career. Um, And in December of 2013, they agreed to drop the case and both parties came to an agreement outside of court. So in 2014, they kind of so the beginning of 2014, she signed a new recording contract with Atlantic. Yep. And um, former home of uh, Brandy. Yes. Yes. Atlantic's been with so many people. Aretha was on Atlantic for a long time. I feel like everyone everyone does the rounds between uh-huh. all the different labels yeah, throughout yeah. their career. So she signs in 2014. Mm-hmm. In 2015, her website goes back up under Atlantic. So now she's finally... It's another year of just, yeah. you know, almost a year and a half where like... It's just so slow moving It's just so her. slow moving for her. And she's still just trying, right? She's closing get, she's in got, on 30. <laughs> yes. She's trying to get all of this music out. She releases three new singles on on this EP called Three. Uh, she released it. She referred to them as a Tringle, <laughs> and and then in support of the release, she um she did the I Am JoJo tour, which was her first world tour in 2015. Again, still no album. Yeah. So after she goes on this tour, she releases another EP called Love Joe Two. <laughs> so like another six months go by. Fifth Harmony announces that JoJo is going to be one of the opening acts on their on their tour. Um, oh, the indignity. Year. The indi- I know she's been around. Now she has to open for. I mean, I love Fifth Harmony, but like she's got to yeah. open for them now, you know. And again, this is because like she's been purposely kept out of the public eye for no reason. She has been suspected to be dead for yes. like a decade. <laughs> yes, this is 2016, right? In July, she releases her lead single from her third album. Uh, called Fuck Apologies, featuring rapper and label mate Wiz Khalifa. And it's actually, I like the song. I like mm-hmm. the song. But she's, you know, she's kind of mad, right? Like, she's finally got a platform to yeah. be mad and talk about it. Her third studio album is released on October 14th, 2016, 10 years after her the release of her second album, The High Road. The album enters uh, and peaks at the Billboard 200 at number six, and then she goes on mm-hmm. a tour. It falls off the charts like three weeks later. To talk about those 10 years that she was largely out of the spotlight, she was gone for the whole of her like 18 to 24 year old era of like, that's the prime time. Yes. To build your base. To build your base, to build your career. Build your catalog. To be like a young, fresh artist. Mm -hmm. Like 2016 Mm -hmm. She's no longer fresh. And yeah. it's, it's sad because, I mean, yeah, that music is really fresh. Yeah. It was hard to figure out how to get that music into people's ears. She came out when she was 13 and it, like her music resonated at the time, but she didn't have the chance to nurture that relationship with the fans. Yeah. And and have people like follow her progression as an artist. So here now she is coming out 10 years later with a completely new sound that's like, it's pretty good. But yeah. people, like to your point, haven't been on the journey. So her third album, after waiting 10 years... It comes out with a bang and then kind of falls off. She leaves Atlantic the next year. But she announces that she is doing a joint venture uh, with Interscope. And she creates her own label called Clover Music. 
Mm-hmm. And so this is 2017. In 2018, she goes on another tour to promote all of the songs, basically, that she had leaked, covered, put on mixtapes in the previous 10 years. And then at the end of the year, she makes a surprise announcement that she has re-recorded her first two albums and released right those. There. Yes. Yes, I was too. She released those on streaming and also releases a re-recording of Disaster and a re-recording of Demonstrate. Yeah. It's crazy. So so just to explain to people why she re-released this, Blackground, after all this time, after releasing her from her contract and they arrive at the settlement, all JoJo has asked them to do is put the original albums online and they won't do it. So the only way, because she's like, this is my, these are what people want. Like this is my original music. She goes into the studio. She realizes there's a loophole that if she, she can cover herself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And she talks about the process where she didn't want to be, she didn't want to go back and necessarily do them the same. But at the same time, she's like, people remember that version. Mm -hmm. So she tried to be as faithful as possible. And she goes back, she records both of the albums in their entirety. And now she owns them and put them back up online. So now they're available. And that's why she also did demonstrate. And so earlier this year, in March of this year, she released a new album called uh, Good to Know. Came out in March. Right when pandemic happens. Mm. She was Mm -hmm. supposed to tour in November for this album. Doesn't look like that's going to happen. She needs those touring dollars. It it is. And it continues to be a really tough road for her. But I want to say Good to Know has a lot of good songs. There is a single called Man, which I love. She talks about, you know, the toll that this took on her the last 10 years. Like she's, you know, her struggles with depression, her struggles with alcohol, her struggles with sex addiction, her struggles with just, you know, independence and just feeling like shit, basically, you know, because, you know, she became the brunt of a joke, really, like for a long time, because people just didn't understand what was happening fully. And so there's these really great songs. There's Man, there's a song called Think About You, there's a song called Small Things. Um, It's just really good. And then she released, because now she can release whatever she wants, she also released a full acoustic version of the album, and she's mm-hmm. continuing to put out music. She just released a song on Friday, July 31st. She has it. She jokes that she has it in her contract that she can release as much music as she wants now. She does not have to wait for an album. It's a very modern perspective yeah. on getting, because it's that, it's that idea, I think, of like the long tail. I think there was this, there's this book called like The Long Tail. And it talked about how traditionally, you know, marketing and, and releasing of products, they try to focus on like the huge impact and getting the most the most money out of the biggest thing that you could possibly release in one moment versus like in this digital era where digital commodities aren't as limited as like physical copies of things that the focus shifts more towards like how, how much volume of actual product can you release? Can you release a million products and get one person to buy one of each versus like trying to release one thing that a million people are going to buy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think it's very smart. Her voice sounds incredible, particularly on the acoustic album. There's some songs that I'll post that just, her voice is just age. She's 29 now. Okay. She just made the cut. She just made <laughs> before she gets sent out to pasture. And, yep. um, you know, it's, it, there's just a maturity there and, and it's, it's just, a she's come a long way since, uh, you know, playground fights. Uh, yeah. in the in the Foxborough schoolyard. When I think about her having to re-record all of her basically all of her hits because they weren't 
available. Like imagine if you were like Taylor Dane and no one could hear mm-hmm. Tell It To My Heart. Well, I mean, this has become, uh, I don't want to say she's the first, but I think she kind of brought this issue to the mainstream. Yeah. Taylor Swift is talking about doing that now because Big Machine owns her masters, right? And there's a whole question about like, what is she going to do? Can she perform them? Can she, what can she do now? Mm -hmm. And so she's talked about potentially re-recording them. And I think that's, that's something that um, people don't know. And and the last thing I want to say is like, she talks a lot about how she feels real. Jojo feels very bad for Aaliyah. Hmm. Because the way she looks at it is Jojo got this opportunity to kind of rescue her legacy. Yeah. Because Aaliyah died, she can't. Her uncle's not releasing anything. And yeah. there was an interesting article. It's like, you know, 90s nostalgia is kind of reaching its peak. And so like mm-hmm. Aaliyah is a fashion icon. Aaliyah is a musical icon. Like it's kind of right now. It's like a now or never. And and you run the risk of like, there's a whole generation of people who don't know Aaliyah. Yeah. If you can't, if you weren't there, she may as well not exist. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's like, we're at the point where the people that were inspired by Aaliyah get the credit to generations that are just discovering that type of thing. Like I think about like Aaliyah for me was really the introduction to those Timbaland type of productions yeah. Yeah. that really, took off after her death. That baby rattle. But popularly, Timbaland is what the the One Republic song and Carrie Hilson and all of those later hits that Aaliyah kind of paved the way for. It's this whole thing about, I never connected this through JoJo. Yeah. She's very grateful. She says, uh, JoJo says, you know, for the opportunity to do this and take it back and as an artist, knowing what that means to you. Mm -hmm. You know, she had received some legal advice at the time, you know, a lot before they found the loophole about the the statute of limitations. They talked about, well, you know, you could change your name. (laughs) And she's like, I don't, okay, fine. Like I could change my name. But then, then they went further and realized that it wasn't, they didn't own her name. They owned her voice. Yeah. So like she couldn't change that. And then they were like, well, you could just. Tangent. Is that why Amory went through that period where she had two eyes in her name? I mean, here's the thing. I'm going to have to investigate this because I That's remember- what I'm saying. Like <laughs> all of these things that we're just like, these people are so crazy. Like, what are they doing? Like, why are they? If you did, it takes, deeper... it takes two eyes to see Jason. It takes two <laughs> eyes to see. <laughs> but uh, the, she said that like, you know, one of her lawyers had said, you know, you could declare bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, that'll like get you out of it. But she talks about how like, that's not, we're not the kind of people like, we don't come from money like in a in a way yeah. where like we understand how to use that. Like you're Or that you're gonna take a decision like that lightly. Yeah. She's like, I I like we don't do that. Like I'm not gonna declare bankruptcy if I'm not bankrupt. Like I don't think like I'm president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think for most people, your name is all you have. Yeah. I think it, the, the tradition is that like if you're wealthy and a business minded person that like that idea of declaring bankruptcy, it's a maneuver. It's not yeah, it's not an it's not explicit a stain. declaration that like mm-hmm. you are broke, you know? Yeah. It's understood that you're shielding yourself from something. Yeah. Whereas like as a person of not as much means, like it's a it's an indictment. And, you know, I think the thing to look at it is, you know, this is like like say you got laid off mm-hmm. and you struggled to find a job and you're trying to explain to a new employer, like explain this five year gap. Mm-hmm. And it becomes an indictment of the person like it they, they might not have done anything like maybe, you know. And now the employer, the potential employer is just going to be like, "Mm, I don't know. There's this five year gap that. Yeah. Like maybe they weren't working hard enough. And it's the same thing with like Jojo. It's like, you know, I think people should understand that, that like give, give her another look because 
this was an unfair thing that happened to her. So that's my rant about JoJo. The song is Demonstrate, uh, released in 2018. You can find it on Spotify. We'll post it online. Um, I will also post links to the new album, which came out earlier this year. Give two shits about JoJo. (laughs) Well said, well said. All right, uh, let's take a break and we'll be right back. All right, and we're back. How many how many sheets to the proverbial wind are there? Three? Three sheets? Three. Okay. I, I could be two. Two sheets. Oh. Two sheets to the wind. Is that is that a correct use of that proverb? I think so. I think okay. so. You're about two thirds of the way there. Yeah. And I'm I, I've got my third third glass of uh kava. So Oh. All right. So this week I am going to be talking about Rachel Crow. And her 2017 single called Dime. Now, you may be asking yourself, who is Rachel Crow? And should I know who Rachel Crow is? I'm so, asking myself that right now. Yeah. <laughs> the answer to the first question is that Rachel Crow was the fifth place finisher on the failed reality singing competition series, The X Factor US Season 1. Since then, she has made appearances on Nickelodeon shows such as Big Time Rush and Fred the Show. Okay. Um, she has appeared on the ABC sitcom The Goldbergs and the now-canceled spinoff Schooled. And also she starred in the Netflix movie Deidre and Lainey Robitrain. Hmm. Yes. So the answer to the second question, should you know who Rachel Crow is? Absolutely not. <laughs> There's no reason that her fame should have carried on beyond that initial exposure to the United States. <laughs> but, and the reason that I'm so excited to talk about Rachel Crow and this song is that in The X Factor season one, she is eliminated from that program in the most terrible, spectacular way that I have ever witnessed on reality singing competition television history. If you were gagged, if you were gooped when Fantasia Barina, Latoya London, and Jennifer Hudson were the bottom three on the top nine of American Idol season three, like this goes beyond that. This is raw chaos, (laughs) unfettered disaster unfolding in front of your eyes. It's one of those moments in television history where you could tell like, No one involved in that show knew what to do in that moment because so many things were just simultaneously happening. And the producers in the control room were just cutting between all these camera shots of everything happening. And you're like, what the fuck just happened? (laughs) It's wild. (laughs) So you have shown me the clip and it is a sight to see. I thought it would be helpful since the X Factor US was a flop in and of itself and that people might not be familiar to just give a quick primer on how the X factor us comes about what it's about, what happens to it. Right. So the show American idol comes from the show pop idol in the UK. And Simon Cowell is the connecting connective tissue between those two shows where he's kind of this like really harsh judge. I think he creates a lot of the viral moments for that, those shows in their early seasons American Idol, of course, becomes a huge hit in the United States. Pop Idol doesn't fare as well in the UK. So Pop Idol is actually canceled after its second season on the air. But in the vacuum that comes after the cancellation of Pop Idol in the UK, Simon Cowell sees an opportunity to create a show of his own. Because Pop Idol and American Idol were actually created and kind of owned by Simon Fuller. 
And Simon Fuller, we know as the creator of like the Spice Girls and S Club 7, like he had been instrumental in orchestrating these groups that had been kind of gaining popularity in the UK. Mm-hmm. But Simon Cowell, after the cancellation of Pop Idol, he sees the opportunity to pitch his own show that then he owns in his own name, you know? And he pitches the idea of the X Factor UK, which it takes the format of American Idol and it kind of stretches it a little bit. It gives the judges a little bit more of a role where in Pop Idol and American Idol, after the finalists are selected and the voters kind of take over, the judges really play no role aside from giving their feedback, which is of no consequence almost, you know? But in X Factor, the judges also become mentors and they are assigned teams of finalists. So the teams are things like they'll do a team of young girls, a team of young boys, a team of older men and women. Sometimes it's over 25s, sometimes it's over 30s and then a team of groups. And that format really takes hold in the UK. Breakthrough acts like Leona Lewis comes from the X Factor UK, um, Ollie Murs, One Direction, Little Mix, um, Alexandra Burke, James Arthur, like a lot of big name acts actually come out of that show. Didn't Fifth Harmony come out of that too? Fifth Harmony comes out of the US version. Oh, oh. They're like one of the- which one was the, yeah. They are American. Okay, I was- (laughs) I always assume because it was X Factor, it was the UK. No, I mean, and that's the, that's the crazy thing is that, so out of the entirety of the X Factor US, Fifth Harmony and uh, B Miller are two of the only acts that I personally recognize out of the alum, alumni that come out of that show. Um, the other differentiating factor for the X Factor UK is that whereas I feel like Pop Idol and American Idol really focus in on discovering like a voice, like a singular voice, the X Factor kind of blends a lot of different elements that could make a star. So whereas American Idol focuses a lot initially on acapella performances or those kind of workshoppy performances with like an acoustic piano on a small soundstage, X Factor auditions are always staged in front of a large crowd in a big auditorium. They are given like a full backing track, a full auditorium of people so that the judges can kind of assess like, oh, maybe I don't hear this person's potential, but I can hear this crowd just yeah. losing their minds. Right. Yeah. To, yeah, to, to the point of the, the actual name of the show, it's like, do they have the X Factor? Yeah. Because at that point, they're they're looking more at like, your image, your uh, your physicality, and even like dancing and stuff. Because something that becomes more prominent in the X Factor is that when they move into the finals, there's a lot more production value to the numbers. There's like backing dancers, there's lighting effects, there's people coming down from the ceiling, you know, all these things that would become important in the event that you do become like a major recording artist. Yeah. And... So what happens is that once Simon Cowell's contract with American Idol is up, he announces that he's leaving the show to bring X Factor to the United States. And he has huge expectations for this. He seems to truly believe that X Factor US was going to eclipse the American Idol format. There's huge expectations. They've run these Super Bowl ads. There's a lot of speculation about like, what big name celebrities is he going to get to join him on the X Factor? And one announcement that's made is that he's reuniting with Paula Abdul. And that's kind of like, oh, cool. Like, it harkens back to, like, the heyday of American Idol. Yeah. L.A. Reid also joins. And that's kind of like, okay, cool. That's, like, a reputable name in the American recording industry. Uh, The fourth judge is is announced to be Cheryl Cole, which is like, do you know who Cheryl Cole is? I do. Okay. I don't know. I don't know if a lot of Americans knew who Cheryl Cole was. They may know her now. 
because isn't she with she has a yeah baby Le- she has a baby with liam 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 yeah the hot one well one of the hot ones they're all hot to me now <laughs> i think she was on the season with one direction and so she was involved in the formation of one direction Which when she when and, i mean she was like 26 27 and like which is it, Liam? Liam was like Which 16. Is why it's kind of a thing. I mean, you know <laughs> I mean, what? Later. They're later. Grown, they're they're grown, they're grown ass people, people at this now. point. <laughs> but so <laughs> so I feel like the reception to the announcement of this judging panel was kind of like a big okay. So the X Factor originally launches with two presenters. It's this Welsh guy named Steve Jones and then Nicole Scherzinger. They film two rounds of auditions with Cheryl Cole. And after two rounds, she is rather unceremoniously let go. And Nicole Scherzinger takes that spot. There's not a lot of understanding about what happened to prompt the releasing of Cheryl Cole from that position. I remember at the time there was gossip that her accent, she has kind of a strong Welsh accent, I think, was hard to understand for Americans. But also, I feel like in a show that was touted to be the thing that was going to eclipse American Idol in the American cultural psyche, Cheryl Cole didn't really bring anything to the table in that yeah. regard. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Nicole Scherzinger, famously of the Pussycat Dolls. Yeah, at least at least Nicole Scherzinger had a little bit more name recognition well, in that regard. Do we know any of the other Pussycat Dolls' names? Melody Thornton. Okay, so that's... Two, two out of melodies Mel- oh <laughs> god oh my god when we it, if and when we ever talk about the pussycat dolls or nicole scherzinger i need to talk about melody thornton because that was okay there's a wild there's a there's a wild moment i'm sure i believe it i believe it locked locked in the dressing room melody thornton comes bursting out on the stage in the middle of a performance it's crazy wow well, so maybe <laughs> yes. i'll save that for i'll save that for my nicole <laughs> scherzinger story okay. um so this show from the get seems like it might not live up to the hype that Simon Cowell is is giving it. Because keep in mind that, so in 2011, we're moving into American Idol season 10, which brought us Scotty McCreary. Hmm. American Idol uh, through this season still maintains its record as being like number one and number two in Nielsen ratings for the year. Mm-hmm. And at this point in time, it's still very much on top. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing that happens in 2011 is that The Voice also premieres in 2011. And the other thing that kind of comes into play here, I think, is that America's Got Talent is on at this point in time. So what we're experiencing in the year 2011 is we get American Idol season 10 from January to May. We get The Voice season one from April to June. We get America's Got Talent season six from May to September. And then after the conclusion of America's Got Talent, X Factor US premieres in September to December of 2011. So... I don't know how anyone thought that the American public just had this insatiable thirst for reality competition singing series, right? I mean, America's Got Talent is broader than that, but very largely a lot of the winners or runners up from America's Got Talent were actually singers. Mm -hmm. So, oh my God, I feel like I've been talking about this forever. But okay, so that that, the the X factor though, it really really doesn't take hold. uh, You know, I think because there is no x factor to the show itself and then there is so much competition and any of the differentiators that i feel like x factor was trying to bring which is greater participation by judges yeah i think that that was eclipsed by the voice the voice actually does a much better job of bringing the audience into the participation of the judges and then opening it up to more people and trying to identify the x factor i feel like that's also better achieved through america's got talent 
you know, and then you just have a lot of the air sucked out by American Idol itself, which again is still number one. So Rachel Crow appears on season one of X Factor US, and she is a 13-year-old girl. She is just a bright ray of sunshine. She's molded very much in the like realm of like a Shirley Temple, Pollyanna type mm-hmm, of character, mm-hmm. I think, because she's just so precocious and so cheery. She's got this level of poise and polish that feels almost like child pageanty. Mm-hmm. And she's got this huge voice. She can just belt, you know, to me, there are shades of like Britney Spears appearances as like a 10 year old on star search. Mm-hmm. When you see that, like, little girl just performing these big songs and doing these these big vampy type of moves and striking the pose and you think oh my god that's so precious Mm -hmm. but at the same time it also feels a little bit like a put on yeah like they've been practicing all of these lines and all these moves in the mirror they're really just mimicking things that they've seen adults do Mm -hmm. and when you see a little kid mimicking something that you normally associate with an adult you just think like oh my god that's so precious i love it right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in a way that you're not necessarily objectively assessing their talent Mm-hmm. Look back at Britney Spears at Star yeah. in Star Search. I don't know if she's actually a talented singer or if she's just a really good mimic. You, you don't after all of this time. <laughs> I mean, it's it's one of those things where you wonder, like, oh, if Britney Spears had ever like gone to a vocal coach and yeah. honed in on like what she was able yeah. to do in terms of mimicry, would she be Jessica Simpson? Uh, not mm. that you want to be Jessica Simpson, but <laughs> she is a billionaire. <laughs> yeah, well, but, but do you want to be Jessica Simpson in terms of your singing career? Is, I guess is my, my bigger point. But, you know, R- Rachel Crow, she immediately kind of takes hold because she is so cute and so yeah. precious. Yeah. She auditions by singing uh, Mercy by Duffy. Oh, yeah, okay. And there's just something really cute. She strikes this funny pose at the end where she puts her hand on her hip and kind of cocks her hip out to the side. You know, you can see it in your head. Yeah, like yeah, It's like a little yeah. girl. And and keep in mind, like she's 13, the same age JoJo was yeah. when she debuted. But unlike mm-hmm. JoJo, she is, like Rachel Crow is solidly a child. Mm-hmm. She has the affectations of a child. She has the voice of a child. Mm-hmm. Except for the fact that her voice is very big and she can belt. It's still a childlike voice presentation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so she does the mercy audition i was watching that audition back and they cut to this shot of simon cowell and to me that audition was not spectacular Mm -hmm. it wasn't really anything that i saw anything but there's a shot that you see of simon cowell he has this look of just kind of a blank look on his face and you see him kind of look over his shoulder and the audience is going crazy and you get the sense that in that moment because of that live studio audience at the audition he's seeing the potential Mm-hmm. of this 13-year-old girl standing in front of him singing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when we go into the live performances, she for me, I was I watched this show as it was airing. And for me, there was this breakout performance that she did of I'd Rather Go Blind. By oh, Etta God, James. the Etta James song. And she kind of looks yes. like a little mini Etta James, doesn't she? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, she talks about that now. She talks about, yeah, slap some big fucking winged eyeliner and some yeah. big black blocked eyebrows on uh, Rachel uh-huh. Crow. get her into an Etta James biopic because she <laughs> she looks like Etta James <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know the, the it's funny because at the time that song had kind of researched a little bit because um, Beyonce sang it for Cadillac Records in Got 2008 it. yeah 
And so during a movie-themed week on The X Factor, Rachel Crow saw her opportunity to then bring this Etta James song into the mix. And it's pretty phenomenal. I mean, again, you have to view it through the eyes of like, this is a 13-year-old girl singing the song, but she does she does a really great like little mimicry version of it, you know? Mm-hmm. It's above and beyond anything that you would think that like a 13-year-old would be able to do. Mm-hmm. But... And this kind of goes into her elimination and the epic moment that I've been teasing for however many minutes now. The way that the X Factor works, and this is one of the differentiators between American Idol and the X Factor, is that on the live results show, they would reveal the two people that got the least number of votes. They wouldn't say who actually got the least number of votes, just who were the bottom two by America's votes. And then they would give those two artists one last chance in like a final showdown. And those artists would have a song prepared they would do one last rendition of that song. Sometimes they would choose a brand new song that they had never performed before, but sometimes they would also revisit a song that had gotten a particularly good reaction in the past, right? So the the bottom two contestants do their final showdown song, and then it's up to the judges to decide who is going to advance. So there's a panel of four judges, and they're all mentoring different people, right? So in the event that the two lowest vote getters come from two different teams... The voting kind of becomes tricky, right? Because obviously the mentors are going to vote for their contestant to stay, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. leaving just two other judges to really actually make the decision about who advances and who goes home. In In the event of a deadlock between the two lowest vote getters, they lob that decision back to the American public and then they reveal who actually got the lowest number of votes and that person goes home. So... It's funny because there's a lot of potential there for producer, like producer machination there. Like the producers can manipulate this result if they see fit. And I think that a lot of those beliefs had centered in all of these reality competition series, like that America's Next Top Model or American Idol or So You Think You Can Dance or any of these series. There was always this idea like, well, that decision was actually made by producers to send this person. Mm-hmm. They wanted to keep this other person around because of this or that, you know. This moment of reality television just feels so unstructured and so chaotic that it shattered my belief that there would ever be producers stepping in behind the scenes. Because if producers could have stepped in behind the scenes at this point in time, they would have and they should have. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So in this top five, Rachel Crow ends up in the bottom two with Marcus Canty. And Marcus Canty is a male um, R&B singer. He's very much in the vein of like an usher. But I don't feel like that he had ever managed to show what his X factor was in terms of distinguishing him from Usher or Chris Brown or anyone else in his genre. Mm -hmm. So he had actually been in the bottom two for like three consecutive weeks. And he had saved himself every time with his final showdown performance. But going into this top five final showdown between him and Rachel Crowe, It seemed fairly obvious to me that Rachel Crow was being eyed for, if not winning the whole series and the cash prize of $5 million, that she was at least being eyed for the final, Mm -hmm. right? That one, she was being mentored by Simon Cowell. And I feel like if anyone had any kind of hand in stuff that was happening on this show, Simon Cowell would have a hand in this, right? Mm -hmm. And Rachel Crow is Simon Cowell's mentee. Mm -hmm. So he has an interest in this. And... What happens is that in their final showdown performance, Rachel Crow revisits I'd Rather Go Blind. 
So she does a second version of this and watching the two different performances of her doing the song, it's very interesting because the first performance is good. It's, it's mimicking the classic versions of this song. When she does this song as her final showdown at the risk of being eliminated from her spot on the X Factor, you feel something else. She is scared. She is pissed. She's begging for her right to stay on this show. And it comes through in a way that, to the idea of her being very pageanty and polished, I felt like there was something in that performance that just went above and beyond. And that was the first time I was like, oh, like, shit, this girl actually feels something, mm-hmm. you know? Because at the end, she just drop, the, the mic just drops to her side and she just looks so def- deflated. I feel like there's a history or a trope in reality competition series where they criticize certain contestants for being too poised or too polished in the vein of saying like, I don't know who you are. Uh huh. RuPaul's drag race does this to like Ben de la creme. They did this to, um, um, Chad Michaels, just this idea that like, Oh, you present a certain part of yourself that you want us to see, but we want to see you. Mm -hmm. For me personally, like this is that moment with Rachel Crow. Like she looked like she was just going to die. Mm-hmm. And she was begging, begging, like, I'd rather go blind. Like, mm-hmm. let me stay on this show. Okay, so <laughs> then we get to the moment. We get to the moment. For some reason, they leave it up to Nicole Scherzinger to make the final vote. It's basically gone two votes to eliminate uh, Marcus Canty, one vote to eliminate Rachel Crow. So it's up to Nicole Scherzinger. No brainer, right? Eliminates Marcus Canty. He's been in the bottom three. Or he's been in the bottom two for like three weeks straight. But Nicole Scherzinger is like crying. She's hemming and hawing. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be the one to make this decision. I I can't say it. I don't know what to do. It goes on for far too long. And Steve Jones is just this very stoic Welsh British man. And he's just like, well, you know, we need a decision And Nicole basically says, like, I don't want to say it. I want this to go to a deadlock. And Steve Jones is like, I have to, you have to say, who are you voting to eliminate? And the whole audience is just, you can hear them rallying behind Rachel Crow, right? But in the end, Nicole Scherzinger doesn't want to make that decision. So she pushes the decision to deadlock and she explicitly says, I'm voting to eliminate Rachel Crow. Booze, resounding booze just erupts. And in this moment of, just pure Pollyanna, um, Shirley Temple sunshine. Rachel Crow grabs the mic from Steve Jones and says, "Like it's okay, Nicole. I understand. I, it's okay. No matter what happens, I understand." <laughs> so this is this is because she's pushed it to deadlock. So now it has to be whoever received the actual lowest number of votes. Yeah. Nicole Scherzinger had the opportunity to say, I vote for Marcus Canty to go home. Rachel Crow would have been safe. She says, but she doesn't want to be responsible for that. So she's like, I'm going to push it to a deadlock. I vote for Rachel Crow to go home. Steve Jones opens the fucking envelope. And he's like, the person going home tonight is Rachel Crow. And immediately, just Rachel Crow just, she just disintegrates into a heap. A pink, a pink pleather heap. This poor girl. On the stage. (laughs) And just the audience is going crazy. They cut to Nicole Scherzinger. Nicole Scherzinger is sobbing. Paula Abdul's like trying to console her. And Steve Jones, who's just this 
James Bondian stoic looking British dude doesn't he's fucking doesn't know what to do. He's standing there like, oh, fucking shit. You know, he's supposed to be the one to like finish the segment and be like, oh, like, let's say farewell to Rachel Crow. Congratulations, Marcus Canty. But in the moment, like no one knows what to do. You see him like touching his ear, like into his earpiece, kind of waiting for like, what the fuck do I do mm-hmm. right now? Mm-hmm. Simon Cowell runs on stage. Uh, Rachel Crow's mother runs on stage. She's still on the ground, correct? Like she's st- she's like fall, like literally, like collapsed. Yeah. Yeah. You can catch her screaming in other people's microphones. <laughs> yeah, just hysterical. And this is where this is the origination of the famous Nicole Scherzinger. My career is over. Dot gif moment. Like if you've ever seen those moments of Nicole Scherzinger, just hysterical. And the caption is "My career is over." It's from this moment. You know, they get Rachel Crow to her feet. Simon Cowell's trying to console her. Her mother's trying to console her. And she's just screaming, like, you promised me everything would be okay. Like, uh, like. And and Steve Jones just has to be like, "Uh, let's take a look at Rachel Crow's journey. And they show it and the show just ends. (laughs) But... To, to date, like that is that is one of the defining moments for me in reality singing competition series history. Like it cannot, it cannot be topped. And that took me forever to explain. But in the aftermath of this, and we had previously talked about what is the efficacy of being an also ran on a reality singing competition series. Rachel Crow comes in fifth place here. There's immediately a sense that, like, Simon Cowell believes in her. That's really important. His company, Psycho Recordings, believes in her. So there's there's value in that. Mm-hmm. Um, once the show wraps, there's talks of, you know, she's already in talks with, uh, like, Disney or Nickelodeon in terms of getting some kind of development deal working for her. And that's when she does start to appear in these television shows on Nickelodeon. And she, for a brief period of time, she talks about that she had a development deal for a variety show of her own that they filmed a pilot for. But, um, you know, those opportunities for Rachel Crow never really go beyond these like recurring roles or guest starring roles. Her, her pilot does not get picked up. And, you know, she releases an EP off of Psycho Records with Simon Cowell. That really doesn't do anything for her. You know, it's in that weird period of time, like, what do you do with this precocious 13-year-old? Yeah. Right? To make her a veritable star. You know, good on her. She continues to hustle. She pursues more acting roles. She continues to try and record. She gets signed to a new deal with S-Curve Records, which I think is like kind of like a, a smaller label. Although they, I think that um, Andy Grammer is oh. on S-Curve. Interesting. Um, but, you know, she gets this deal with S-Curve Records and she's, she continues to try and, like, record and release music. And one of these songs is 2017's Dime. And I finally got here, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, did, I didn't know we were talking about a song. I thought we were talking about her. <laughs> I don't, I mean, there's not, there's not much to say about this song except that it's a bop. Mm, okay. It's a banger. It's a dance anthem. It's for all those times when you need to reinforce for yourself that you know your own worth. She's saying, like, I'm not just a penny you can pick up off the sidewalk. I'm a dime. <laughs> I mean, in this in this time of coin shortages, oh, there's yeah. a lot of value to that. Yeah. I mean, you could be valuable as a penny, but she's a dime. <laughs> and I mean, I first heard this song played in the locker room at the gym. I don't know who 
controls the playlist at 7 a.m. at Crunch Sunset. But some gay. Yeah. I heard this song. I was like, what is this song? This song is amazing. This song, this song could get me to run 8.5 miles per hour on the treadmill for eight minutes, you know? <laughs> Cause I'm like, yeah, I'm a dime. I'm a dime. I'm a total dime, you know? <laughs> and then I come to find out like, oh, oh, this is Rachel Crow. Oh, she's still around. Oh. And I have nothing more really to say about the song itself <laughs> or her history as an artist, but I think kind of wrapping this conversation up, not that it was a conversation, it was me ranting for a half hour, but <laughs> in terms of the false starts for her and for Jojo, is it hard to figure out what to do with a performer that young? You know, I think unlike Jojo, who had a, a very mature sounding voice and a mature presentation at a young age, Rachel Crow is almost the exact opposite because she had and continues to have a young sounding voice. Oh, really? It's still, uh, yeah. Yeah, like I think about, for some reason, I always think about like um, like Janelle Monet or the lead singer of Honeycone. You know, Honeycone that did like from before. Yes, there's. Is a, it girls that ain't easy? There's a there's an Ashanti Ashanti used a Honeycone uh, sample in okay. one of her songs. Sorry, bring Honeycone, it back. Yeah, Honeycone did like the one ads, one yes. ads, and girls that ain't easy. Mm-hmm. But the lead singer of Honeycone had a quality to her voice that just sounded young. In a way that I think Janelle Monet also has a young quality. To, like you yeah. wouldn't necessarily be able to think of how old Janelle Monet is, mm-hmm. and they almost sound like a young Michael Jackson, like a Jackson Five era Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the, the timber to the voice. G- going back to like Mary J. Blige, you would never think that Mary J. Blige was a young woman. Yeah, because of just the sound of the sound of her voice. Jojo, you might mistake for a much older woman because yeah. of the sound of her voice. Yeah, but Rachel Crow had and continues to have the voice to me of like a young child, and it's disarming to hear that voice, especially when I visualize them as a thirteen-year-old girl in a bright pink pleather jacket from like, mm-hmm. you know, li- limited two. It's disarming to me to hear her talk about like relationships that went wrong, and so I wonder is that a difficulty for artists like that that break when they're 13? And is that why you feel like child stars that are maybe discovered around that time, they're put into a little bit of an incubator. Like they might get signed and developed when they're 13, but you maybe don't hear anything from them till they're 16. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? You know? Yeah. I just, I just think about like, what does, what does someone like Rachel Crow do now to hear her in interviews? It seems like she, you know, during her Nickelodeon and Disney days, she made longstanding contacts, at least with talent. Like she talks about being good friends with like Joey King, who was in that, um, the act with Patricia Arquette, that Munchausen by proxy limited series on Hulu. Oh, 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 She's yeah. talked about being really good friends with like Greg Sulkin, who oh, he was on. I, uh, I am aware of Greg Sulkin. Do you know Greg Sulkin from um, Quentin Lee's film White Frog? No. Oh, no. I, I know him from like the Runaways. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, it's, it's funny. He was, because he was on, um, he was on Wizards of Waverly Place. Mm. He was on the MTV series, um, Faking It. But in the interim, he was also in that Quentin Lee movie. I did not know that. He was in the Quentin Lee movie playing Harry Shum's secret gay boyfriend. Oh, I do remember. Sorry, spoiler alert for anyone no, I, that was I, like a Quentin I, Lee fan. But uh, spoiler alert, uh, Harry Shum, I think he he dies and then leaves behind the remnants of this secret gay relationship that then his like his as- his brother who has Asperger's is left to kind of like figure out and understand. Um, That's right. He's I, I just looked at he's in the little picture. He's in the little. 
the thumbnail? The strip, the, th- the, the, you know, like, that's how he finds out, because, yeah. like, in a photo booth. Oh, my God. So, so if you if you had any feelings about Greg Sulkin, go back and watch that movie. Uh, <laughs> Don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> but, you know, so, she, so she's still kind of swimming in those circles. I think she's still trying to make it happen. Um, she's continued to try and push her songwriting, push her releases. And as much as she goes on interviews talking about how much music she's producing, we haven't seen a whole lot of output from her. So I don't know what exactly is holding that up, but she's got to, she's got to finish her vendetta against Nicole Scherzer. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, let's talk. I know she said she's not to blame, but I mean, she's not to blame, but I'm like, my goodness. In the aftermath of that, Nicole Scherzinger was not asked back for X Factor US season two. She and Kelly Rowland did a flip-flop. Kelly Rowland had been doing X-Factor UK and mm. Nicole Scherzinger was doing X-Factor US. After X-Factor US season one, at the last minute, they were like, bye, Nicole. Like, we're sending you to the UK. <laughs> and then they brought Kelly Rowland over for season two. And um, that presenter, Steve Jones, he was also taken out of the mix after that. He was taken out back and but- shot. <laughs> That's it. I don't know if this conversation had as much to do with Rachel Crow as it had to do with X-Factor. But... Um, that's why I was really excited to talk about this song and kind of shoehorn it into this conversation we're having about, you know, young women who debut a little early and then disappear. All right. So we're going to wrap it up for today. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. And outro. Special thanks to Adam Elder for composing our theme music. Songs and videos featured in today's episodes will be posted to our website, flopredeemer.com. Remember, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice and check us out on social at Flop Redeemer on Instagram and Twitter and at facebook.com slash Flop Redeemer. And also you can email us at flopredeemer at gmail.com. 